Welcome to Women's Hoops and Talks, the What Podcast, where we are elevating the voice of women in basketball. I'm Tara, and today I'm going to share my conversations with three different women who write about three different teams. And the theme for this episode is what happens when a player leaves. Those of you who are Trailblazers fans and listen to the weekly Blazers Edge podcast are probably not surprised that this episode of the What Podcast was inspired by the Blazers offseason. This offseason, we saw both Ed Davis and Shabazz Napier leave to join the Brooklyn Nets and... I had a little bit of a hard time with saying goodbye to Ed. He meant so much to this team. But it also got me thinking about, I bet you I am not the only one who experiences this type of sadness, or I wouldn't even, I don't know if it's really sadness, just so much as consternation and sort of brief frustration when a player that you really like leaves. In order to kind of try and process this, I reached out to women from different fan bases to try and find people who wanted to talk about what happened to them and to their communities when players left. I found this very therapeutic, really enlightening, and also really interesting just to hear some of the stories about players and uh, you know, what they meant to a community and how people reacted once they left. So I hope you enjoy it as uh, listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. First, you're going to meet Sandy Mui. She's a, she writes about the Brooklyn Nets and we're going to talk about a situation that a lot of people have been in, which is when a player that you really like, who is maybe not a big name player or is a role player, or maybe even somebody on the fringes, what happens when somebody like that leaves? We're going to have a conversation with Sandy about that, and you can find her on Twitter at Sandy S. Mui. That's spelled S-A-N-D-Y-S-M-U-I. And once the season starts, you can find her work on the Yes Network, all about the Brooklyn Nets. Joining us is Sandy Mui. She writes about the Nets for the Brooklyn game. Thank you so much for being here, Sandy. Thanks so much, Tara, for having me here. You write about the Nets. Can you start off by telling the listeners just real briefly how you started writing about them and kind of your connection to basketball and uh, being a fan of basketball and writing? Yeah, sure. I actually really love telling the story, and I guess every sports fan is asked that at some point. Um, so when I was in fourth grade, that would be back in 2006, my elementary school was giving out two free tickets to each student to a Nets game. So that was back when they were in Jersey and I couldn't go to the game that night because I had a family dinner, but for some reason, the moment I got home, I decided to turn on the TV and I was just hooked ever since. And I have a close connection to the Nets because of that, since they're the team that got me into basketball, but also since I grew up in Brooklyn and New York, you know, I also grew up watching the Knicks, and even though both teams, like, didn't get too far in the playoffs or really for the Knicks, it was a lot of bad years under Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> yeah, I did watch both teams a lot when I was younger, and there are a bunch of players that are very close to my heart <laughs> on both teams. 
I love that story about how you got started being hooked on basketball because you got tickets, but even though you weren't able to go to the game, you turned it on and watched it anyway. And that's what hooked you in. And it's like, it, it's a it's a really great story for me. I love it because one of the things that we do at Blazers Edge every year is we uh, listeners from Blazers Edge uh, contribute tickets to kids to come to games who like otherwise might not be able to come to games. And it's really fun to like hear the story of an adult who like you know was gifted with tickets, and even though you weren't able to uh, go to the game that night, it inspired you into a lifelong. Um, you know, love for the game. And that's really what, you know, people are trying to do when they're, when they're sharing tickets. That's awesome. I love it. (laughs) That's a really cute initiative you guys do at Blazer's Edge. (laughs) Yeah. Blazer's Edge night. It's awesome. We fill the bowl with little kids. Well, tonight our topic is uh, we're talking about what happens when a player leaves a team. So if you could start off by telling us the story about, tell us about a time that a player left. I mean, these, I have a couple of instances that I want to talk about. So the more recent one, a lot of Nets fans and like people who read my stuff know that I hold Sean Kilpatrick very close to my heart. And it was just crazy because I always remember his 38-point like outburst against the Clippers for the Nets. And it's crazy because... I remember I got home late that night. I had a night class that semester, and I just turned on the TV. Like, the entire train ride home, the nets were down. But then I was like, what the hell is going on? And, like, people were tweeting at me, like, my boy Sean Kilpatrick is getting the team back into this. And I think I caught maybe the last 30 or so seconds, maybe even the final minute of regulation when I got home, and I got to see overtime. It was great. So those are just, like, the instances you'll remember as a fan and like I've always liked Kilpatrick even though like he ended up kind of losing his shine to the emerging Joe Harris on the team and that's probably why he just couldn't make the cut for the Nets anymore but so I actually I have to admit I had to look up Sean Kilpatrick because I you know we're very far away on the west coast we don't always see what's going on on the east coast so I had to look him up so he's not he wasn't a you know a a big name star exactly what were the circumstances under which he was no longer a net was he traded did he leave in free agency what was the what was the deal I believe he was like waived involved um, if I remember this correctly probably the 76ers deal when the Nets got Nick Stauskas and Julio Okafor, and they had to create the space, like in terms of the cap and the roster, to get both players. And it was like kind of a redundant thing to me over the last couple of seasons, too. Like everyone kind of had the vibe that either Joe Harris or Sean Kilpatrick would be moving on with this team, but not both of them. And Joe Harris was the one who eventually got it, and he recently signed re-signed a deal with the Nets so that was cool (laughs) and yeah it sounds like it was something that a lot of people maybe weren't surprised at when it was happening because they there were a couple of different players in that position I wasn't surprised either like I was hoping for my own personal interest Uh that Kilpatrick would be the one who made the cut and he didn't and he is like one of the more uh guys you know who could just score a lot at any given moment but it's not like super consistent and it just kind of happens and the net system doesn't really work that way so I could see why 
he wasn't the one who ended up staying. Well, usually when somebody leaves, I bet you you were not the only one saddened by his departure. I'm sure there's like some fans because I know there was this guy who was following me for a while on Twitter. His Twitter display name was probably like uh, Sean Kilpatrick Stan or something like that. And yeah, there's always those even for the like unlikeliest players at some point. So how did the the players react to leaving him? Was it anything that anybody, I mean, did they do the Instagram post where they thanked him or what was it like? And it also, how did the team, team change? Was there any, uh, because he wasn't there anymore, did somebody else come in in a different position to take on a different role or what happened afterwards? In terms of the team, the Nets have just been extremely wing heavy for the last couple of seasons. So I wouldn't say that the team changed too much. It just kind of lightened their load on, like, the shooting guards in terms of, like, guys who could play maybe both positions. Kilpatrick was predominantly just a shooting guard, though. So now it's just a lot of depth, but, like, with just less in terms of the two. And, yeah, I I think I remember people thanking him for his time on the team. I'm sure Sean Marks had a very good statement for him, too, because... Kilpatrick was the very first guy that he signed when um, Sean Marks took office. And I'm sure like there weren't too many issues in terms of the chemistry and just them vibing in the locker rooms. And I remember Kilpatrick thanked the team for his time there too because this was the team that really gave him an opportunity. He was emerging in the then D-League. I think it's really interesting that when I first contacted you to talk about a player who left, in my mind, I was thinking it would be somebody like Brooke Lopez, who spent a whole bunch of time with the organization and and then was gone. And I think it's really interesting how sometimes fan bases don't know each other's little behind the scenes stories, you know, about, you know, some of the more um, little niche players who were fan favorites or, you know, made a big impact in a way that didn't ripple out so I really thought you were gonna you know talk about Brooke Lopez (laughs) yeah that might be my fault too as a fan because Brooke Lopez spent a lot of his like middle years on the Nets when I wasn't watching the team too closely probably back when I was in like high school I was just really busy with the community service and classes on all that so I didn't watch the NBA too much back then and I got back into it in my senior year of high school. So it's like more recent stuff that I get more attached to and like just the stuff and players I've seen growing up when I was like in elementary school, middle school that I get more attached to because I've been watching them more closely. I I think it's interesting. Again, I think it's interesting when you look at different fan bases. One of the things that has, you know, happened with the Trailblazers is we had, you know, the giant loss of LaMarcus Aldridge and then our team became Damian Lillard's team. And all these new players were brought in around him with the understanding that they were, you know, going to be building. And so we were like, okay, we got like super attached to these guys (laughs) because it was like, they're, they're going to be the foundation of the team. What point of, um, you know, rebuilding or growing as a team where are the Knicks or I'm sorry where are the Nets right now in in that I mean do they do fans have players that are like oh this guy is going to be here forever and we're going to just be you know building around him and then or is it more like you're just taking it year by year (laughs) the more optimistic approach is to look at a lot of the young guys on the roster and 
kind of believe or like have the hope that they'll be on this team for for the long haul, like Karis Levert, Rondé Hollis Jefferson. Um, I don't know if Alan Crabb is considered on the young end, but him too, I suppose. And the Nets rookie from last season, Jared Allen, because they've been showing a lot of good strides and improving their game over the season. So I would say for the most part, those guys, fans really look forward to seeing, hopefully like in the future and when this team is a lot more successful. And the more like realistic thing to think about is since this team is still rebuilding, there's like not really one player you can say is guaranteed to be here for the long term. Well, we will have to have a whole separate podcast just about Alan Crabb and Ed Davis because um, you've had, you know, Alan Crabb is former Portland and now Ed Davis coming there. Uh, you are in for a real treat. I hope that you all learn to love him as much as we did because it has been very hard to say goodbye, which is kind of why I'm doing this episode of the podcast to just have do therapy. <laughs> I, I hope we appreciate him as much as you guys did. <laughs> Okay, next, here is my conversation with friend of the show, Caitlin Cooper. I love everything she writes about Indiana for Indiana for Indy Cornrows, and I knew she was going to have some great insight to what happened when Paul George left. The thing to remember about Paul George was that he had informed Indiana that he was not going to sign an extension, and so he was subsequently traded. Kind of an interesting situation where players, where fan base was really kind of bracing for what was going to happen. You can find Caitlin on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper, and of course you can find her work on IndieCornrows.com. So how did Paul George come to the team in the first place? And what was the reaction with like the fan base and how he was worked in as a member of the team? Right. So he was drafted in 2010 and generally like just for some background on the Pacers, they generally rebuild like through the middle of the draft. So Paul George gets drafted and not in the early lottery, obviously. And Danny Granger had kind of been working out with him in, in California, as the story goes. And I think Larry Bird kind of asked Danny Granger's opinion. And it, it's kind of interesting in that regard because they are really similar players. And Danny Granger gave him an endorsement. And then obviously Larry Bird ends up drafting him. And so a little bit of background, like he's a very Paul George was very much a player who got better in the summers. Like he would go away from the team and he would just come back and he would add another skill. Like his handle's still pretty loose still to this day with the thunder, but that was one thing he worked on was getting like his dribble lower, um, just adding offensive skills to his defense because he came into the league more as a defensive player. So all that being said, so when he breaks his leg with team USA a couple years back, that was kind of like a good sort of, juxtaposition with him being a player who is made in the summer and then summer basketball kind of taking away his like career trajectory to an extent and the Pacers fans I think in general really rallied around him at that point which I think most fan bases would but I think they really felt a connection like he he rode in a convertible back to Indianapolis and saw the banner when he came back from Las Vegas and like people could send him cards like the Pacers had like a legit address where people could send him cards and I think that the fans really felt like you know this is our player and felt like he was more connected to the city and then 
obviously he misses all but six games that year. And then when he comes back, like the team that was back-to-back Eastern Conference Finals teams is kind of torn apart at that point. Like Roy Hibbert's gone. David West is gone. George Hill is still there, but his contract's getting ready to come up as well. And Lance had already chosen to go and play for the Hornets. So he comes back and the rosters ever at that point, like post him breaking his legs were always hit breaking his leg, not his legs. Sorry. Um, were just kind of awkward. Like I was just looking at this the other day and a couple people on generally and Pacers Twitter have pointed it out numerous times, but the roster from the season when he ended up forcing his way out from the Pacers, eight of those players, well, just now Yang got re-signed. So seven of those players are no longer even in the NBA. So that I think reflects pretty well on where the team was at as far as what does he see as the future with that, that team. And heading into all that, like all the drama build up. I think a lot of people outside of Indiana were aware, well aware of like the quotes of him, like rumors about him being hell bent on joining the Lakers and people are pretty, you know, up and up on magic Johnson going on Jimmy Kimmel and kind of doing the wink, wink, tampering, non tampering stuff. But there was a lot behind the scenes too, because he's coming in with an awkward roster and time and time again, like Paul George was always very much saying that, you know, I want to have a chance to win in Indiana, like following in that legacy of Reggie Miller, of spending his career there and being able to win a title. And he was vocal about this, but at the same time, there was always these little breadcrumbs like on the media day that year. I remember it was pretty ominous because he started a sentence and said, while I'm here, my focus is on winning a title for Indiana. And like, yeah, I'm not sure that he meant it. Like, I think he very much in the moment is somebody who's kind of a twofold thing. Like he wants to make people happy. He wants people to like him. And at the same time, I think he's pretty transparent and what he says in the moment is his truth. But I don't think he always thinks completely through what impact, like what he says in that moment is going to have, because he says on media day, like while I'm still here and then you get to the trade deadline time, And he does an interview with Mark Stein and he says something along the lines of like, I always want to play on a team that has a chance to win a championship. And right there, I think for like Pacer fans, that should have been a pretty big red flag because there wasn't going to be a lot of ways for the Pacers who are never going to pay the luxury tax to be able to upgrade that roster with Paul George still on the roster. And so that's kind of the stuff that was building up before what I think the general national audience knew. And then, the big, big one was that he was at a charity softball game that they host in Indianapolis. That's for um, Indiana Wish Fund. And he obviously knows he's going to get asked questions about, you know, his future with the Pacers because he only has one year left on his contract and all NBA voting and all the Supermax stuff. He, I mean, that was another big factor because he didn't make an all NBA team. And I think some fans were kind of still holding out hope that because he had such a strong finish to the season and because Kevin Durant had missed a large portion of the season with injuries that maybe he would still sneak on there. And then they'd be able to say, well, look, you know, we can offer you 70 million more dollars if you stay here and then he doesn't make the team but at the charity softball game he like definitively says I'm a pacer and he wants to win in Indiana 
And then within days, it comes out that he and his agent have informed the Pacers that he wants out. So, like, the breadcrumbs were there, but Kevin Pritchard was very much, I think, the mouthpiece of the fan base when he said that it was a gut punch. Like, it probably shouldn't have been a gut punch, but because of what happened at that charity softball game, it kind of turned out to feel like one to the fan base. You talk a little bit about this charity event. Was he pretty plugged into the local community as as far as, like, giving back to the community? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some people kind of feel like he had one foot in and one foot out because he was he did wear like his affinity for Los Angeles on his sleeve, but at the same time he did some stuff behind the scenes. Like I vividly remember he he helped out at Riley Children's Hospital there in Indianapolis a couple times where he would do visits and stuff and he he had met one little girl and her family and I believe that he like got on a GoFundMe page and finished the amount of money they needed to get this handicap accessible van so I think some of the stuff he did in the community just I don't know that he was comfortable with having like cameras there but he definitely was somebody who wants to give back and be there it just wasn't always you know loud and proud for everybody to readily see Mm -hmm. so he as I recall, he was he was traded. He did not walk away in free agency, but he was traded because he had asked to be traded. Is that correct? Well, yeah, like it comes out like within days of that charity softball game. Literally, I don't even remember. It could have been either Shams or Woj. I don't even remember who had the big bomb of the moment. But I think it was on Father's Day where we're just like sitting here. And then up comes the notification on my phone days later where it says that Paul George has informed the Pacers that he has no plans to resign. So (laughs) obviously that puts the Pacers in the position of, you know, everybody knows at that point that he doesn't really want to be there. So are you going to bring him back for a year? Or are you going to try to get something in return for him? Which, you know, that's what fans have to remember. Cause like Gordon Hayward stuff was happening at the same time. And like by comparison, Gordon Hayward played out his contract and then he left and signed with the Celtics and the jazz didn't get necessarily anything in return. Obviously they drafted Donovan Mitchell and that helped fill the hole. But with the Pacers, like if Paul George had played out his contract and hadn't have said, like, I don't plan to resign here, they wouldn't have gotten Victor Oladipo and Sabonis. So Mm -hmm. there's an alternate reality there. (laughs) For sure. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question, which was what was the initial reaction when everyone found out he'd been traded and what the trade was? I think there was definitely an appetite that most of the fan base wanted it done and they wanted it done yesterday. Like there was just a bad taste after the comments that he made at the charity softball game. So like people were, there was a lot of momentum for a trade, but then when that came out as the package, there was obviously a lot of backlash, like myself included. I admit that I, I panned it. I like, if you look at Victor's stats from that Houston playoff series, like he tempted six total free throws. He was shooting like 24% from three. Like he just wasn't the player that people saw this year when he got to Indiana. So I think people were thinking like, we're taking back near to, I don't know. I think it's something like 20 to 25% of the cap in salary to get this player. And I think some people also felt kind of like, it's just a nod to the fan base because Victor played for Indiana university. And because in, because Indiana is so like, more connected with college basketball i think people felt like oh they're just like trying to get a guy to sell tickets right so it was like give you know throw them something because they're losing paul george so let's bring back a hometown guy and hope that that sells tickets interesting 
Yeah, I remember we were. I mean, over in the Northwest, we were shocked at the um, at the trade, and that was kind of like the first trade that I ever looked at. Like, wait a minute, when when have these ever actually appeared equal on paper? At least initially, you know, because it was Oladipo and Sabonis, and like you were saying, you know, um, Oladipo hadn't really, um, you know, you hadn't seen much out of him yet. So how did the team adjust uh, once Paul George left and these new components um, needed to be worked in? I think there was like very much a feeling of, you know, kind of Paul George left and that that was a weight off their shoulders and they could kind of just play more freely and that the, they knew the ball was going to be moving more. And then obviously like Victor just comes in and he physically looks different, just being trimmed and fit. And then you can tell that he's just added all these he has skilled agility and from the moment like he's out there, first of all, he's hitting pull up threes at a really high clip to start the season. And that's one thing, but his speed is just, you know, absolutely a weapon. If people went under the screens, he could still beat him to the rim. When bigs dropped really deep, he could still beat him to the rim. And it, I mean, it was a quick, I think it was a pretty quick adjustment period. I mean, six games into the season, Victor's hitting a game winner. And I'm sure, you know, the stats about how Paul George never made any head baskets and it, yeah, Victor sort of just became everything that people like the little nitpicky things that fans had about Paul George. Like it was almost like Victor read a manual that said, you know, what would Pacer fans have wanted Paul George to be like? How could they answer that? Because Victor's hitting all these clutch shots that Paul George never really did. And then there was always complaints kind of about Paul George wasn't a, a very good vocal leader, like in the locker room, like that isn't necessarily him. And I think that's why a lot of people see him better off in like OKC or if he had gone to the Lakers where he could be the number two player. And Victor, like there's early, early meetings where Miles Turner was kind of struggling and Victor's going over to his house and building, building him up and building up his confidence. And you see him in the huddles, leading huddles. And, you know, Kevin Pritchard loves to tell this story where they were kind of in a little slump where they had lost several games and Kevin Pritchard came into the practice facility and Victor was like whistling and Kevin Pritchard's like kind of thinking, aren't you worried about how we're playing? And Victor's like, no, I know we're going to be okay. I believe in this team. And, and then, you know, Paul George also didn't always take a ton of responsibility and losses. Like there was one game in San Antonio where he just didn't play well. Like Kawhi thoroughly outplayed him. He shot like Paul George shot the ball poorly. Kawhi got the best of him in every sort of way. And he goes outside post game and just starts saying like that he had been sick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that type of stuff. Like, I think people in Indiana really just kind of wanted to hear and be like, you know, I just didn't play well enough tonight and I need to be better. And Victor's like out there doing push-ups in a post-game conference when he misses a free throw. Like, it literally was almost like Victor read this manual and looked at Paul George's career and was like, I'm going to do this, this and this. But then at the same time, it's very genuine. So, right. Well, so it sounds like people have um, gotten over uh, Paul George's departure. Um, you would think, you would think, but no. Is that not true? No, like, I, I don't think time is going to heal all wounds in this uh -huh. Like, and you would think with Victor that, you know, having what Vic, Victor's the most improved player, Sabonis takes a lot of leaps. But I mean, still to this day that Twitter and and all the major like outlets litigate practically everything Paul George says, like when he made that three part miniseries, like there was still tons of stuff in Indiana published about Paul George's free agency this summer. And when he made that three part miniseries, I think there was like some quote where he said 
You know, you don't want to be a part of something that you don't feel part of with regard to the Pacers, like that he didn't feel fully involved. And people were so angry about this. And I remember I posted something along the lines of like, he said that very thing at the trade deadline. Like when he didn't get traded that February, he said, you know, I didn't feel very much in the loop about what we're doing and they want me to be their guy, but they don't involve me. And that kind of is highlights like the push and pull, like what Paul George thought a franchise players should be and I think what the Pacers felt it should be which is kind of more get in line we want you to play the four and you know you play for something more than yourself and Paul George thinking you know if I'm going to be the top franchise player I should be more involved in decision making and I think like even to this day that quote came out and people were angry about it like I don't think time will heal what what he was which is sad because he's one of the best Pacers and and Pacer history so it's it's kind of sad in a way. Well, last question. How about for you? How do you, how do you feel in terms of, you know, your, uh, your fandom of the team and of the players that are on the team? How do you, how do you feel about how things are right now? Yeah. You know, I think, I think I said this like a bunch of times this season, like when I was watching Paul George in Oklahoma city, like I miss watching him float around the perimeter and play defense, but I'm also, I also can be looking at Victor and be happy with the trajectory of the team. Uh Like, I, I wish it wouldn't have ended the way that it did, but I think the Pacers are obviously on a good path now and have a guy that has embraced being, you know, the face of Indianapolis. For the big finale, we are talking with Ashley Bastock, a writer for Fear the Sword, which is the SB Nation blog covering the Cleveland Cavaliers. We talked with her about both times LeBron James left the Cavaliers. It's a really great look at how things change. Ashley was a senior in high school when he left the first time, and she looked at it through her fan lens. And by the time he left the second time, she was a credentialed reporter. So she has a whole different take on his departure through that lens. You can find Ashley on Twitter at AshleyBastock42. And of course, find her writing on FearTheSword.com. Well, if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you remember about the first time LeBron James left the Cavaliers. Yeah, so the first time he left in the summer of 2010, I was actually still in high school. So I had no idea that I would eventually be writing about the NBA or writing about the Cavs or actually covering the Cavs at games one day. Um, And I myself was a basketball player. I eventually played division three basketball at John Carroll University just outside of Cleveland. Um, So definitely was an NBA fan, definitely was a Cavs fan being a Cleveland native. Uh, And I just remember it was just such a devastating feeling like being physically, I remember being physically ill when I first played, like, because you really, when we had LeBron for those seven years, and that was, you know, most of my childhood of watching basketball revolved around LeBron James playing for the Cavs. And um, what I always tell people about the first time he left that, you know, aren't from Cleveland is that most people, and I think myself included at the time, we're not necessarily, obviously it, it, you know, sucks not having him on the team anymore and not getting to watch him play day in and day out for the city of Cleveland. Uh, but it was more so the way he left. What it was, 
the whole concept of going on ESPN and doing the decision special that, of course, now has become infamous um, and, you know, doing it in that way. And the Cavs didn't even know what his decision was until right before he announced it. Um, so I think for most fans at that time, it was how he left, uh, more so than the decision to leave, if that makes sense. Well, leading up to his departure, did fans have a pretty uh, did fans have a lot of opinions on what he was going to do? Was it like a, a big concern or were people feeling like he was going to stay? What was the feeling like? My kind of remembrance of that whole summer was that people and, you know, I remember like what my friends were thinking, especially we all kind of wanted to believe that he was staying like you want to believe that the draw of home is just too great um, for him to actually leave and go anywhere. And I mean, it was a media circus. And, you know, they all the meetings when he met with the individual teams for these elaborate pitch meetings at the time, those were all in Cleveland. So downtown was a media circus. There was a ton of speculation. Um, and I honestly can't remember when the initial Miami report came out. But for me, I think even back then, the fact that the decision itself was actually filmed at a Boys and Girls Club in Connecticut, that was kind of, I think, an indication for some people like, okay, this probably isn't good because if he was staying in Cleveland, like he would have done it at St. Vincent, St. Mary or a Boys and Girls Club here. Like it wouldn't have been out of state and kind of so far away from you know, any of these teams that he was picking. So that part of it, I think, was odd for a lot of people back then. Um, but I think back then, and even going back to this, you know, his decision to join the Lakers before that happened, I think people in Cleveland wanted to believe he was staying because they wanted to believe the draw of home was just kind of too, bigger than anything basketball, even at that time when he was 25 and still hadn't won a championship yet. Um, and obviously hindsight is 2020, but you look back and it's like, yeah, there was no way he was staying here in 2010. So, um, yeah, I think it was definitely an odd time from what I remember and people wanting to believe one thing and signs pointing, you know, clearly to the exact opposite of that happening. Oh, man. But that doesn't just encapsulate being a fan <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, when, when he did leave, so over here in Portland, I just remember seeing the burning jerseys. So yeah. that was like the picture that came out of Cleveland. What was it really like when, as the fans were trying to process what happened? Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because like, like I said earlier, I think the um, – you know, the mood was definitely an anger over the move, but the burning of the jerseys thing, I always tell people, I'm like, you look back at that footage and it was the same footage of the same couple of people doing that, that got used over and over and over again. Um, and yeah, I think the fan base was definitely, you know, really upset that first time that he left. And like I said, obviously, yes, it's because you're not, you feel kind of betrayed in a way by this, you know, guy who's, you want him to play for his hometown team. He's only ever been here in his career. Um, and then coupled with the national television special uh, really kind of drove some fans to be really, really, really upset. But, you know, as the years went on, I think it became more about he still did so much for the community and he still did so much for Akron um, that I remember the plain dealer 
ran a poll, actually, I believe it was during the 2013-14 season. So it was LeBron's last year in Miami. And more than 60% of people said that they would welcome him back if he eventually came to rejoin the Cavs. So you saw this switch from anger to, and I even felt it, you know, as a fan just at the time, from anger that he left to really just wanting the best from him, knowing that he is a native, you know, of Northeast Ohio, knowing that he now won championships, even though they weren't here, there was a little bit of sting to that. Um, But really, I think there was at that point, by the end of his tenure in Miami, people had gotten over that initial anger. And I think that kind of proves the point that the anger wasn't necessarily that he left. The anger was how he left. Um, And obviously this time when he left, it was a complete 180 in the announcement. Just that very basic one sentence press release uh, from his agency is really, in my opinion, the exact opposite of a national television special. Yeah, really, really is. I have one more question about the the first departure from Cleveland, and that is about the the letter from the owner. That was a very uh, unique situation that I had never heard of anything like happening that before. What were the reaction of everybody else when they saw that he had done that? I think it was kind of a mixed reaction, honestly. I think the fans that were the most mad were happy that Dan Gilbert wrote this letter. Um, I think that some people were like, whoa, like this is kind of what you said. It's that it was kind of unprecedented, right? Like there had never been um, such a public slamming, I think, of a player leaving as there was when LeBron left Cleveland the first time by an owner. Um, and obviously that kind of drove a wedge, I think they, and you know, only LeBron and Dean Gilbert know what their relationship is, was like, or is like, and, but by all accounts, it seems like there wasn't really even ever that much of a relationship between them the first time for it to have become quote unquote damaged by the letter. Um, but I think the biggest thing was that you know, I'm sure LeBron's feelings were hurt by that, but mm-hmm. they, when he came back the second time, or Dan Gilbert and him sat down, they had that meeting, um, and I think they were both willing to kind of look past whatever happened in the past just in order to bring the Cavs a championship. And, you know, I think they were both they both got what they wanted, right? And they both were able to work together, um, which, you know, is kind of crazy when you when you go back and read that letter it's like wow like how could any player kind of put that behind them but I think that just kind of speaks to the player that LeBron is and the fact that what his ultimate goal was in coming back um but yeah that letter was definitely um met with shock I think when it was published at the time I just remember reading it and being like oh wow he really went in on him for sure. Well, so fast forward now. LeBron came back to Cleveland. Cleveland wins a championship. That's all awesome. And then immediately, well, maybe not. I don't know. What was it? When did people start worrying about looking towards the future or wondering whether or not he was going to stay and what he was going to do next? 
Oh my gosh, I think there was always worry about what he w- that he was going to leave again. Like, even though he said multiple times, you know, he said in the Sports Illustrated letter, and he said multiple times after the Sports Illustrated letter that he wanted to retire here. I mean, I remember rumors after the 2015 season, like, when is LeBron going to leave Cleveland again? You know, when they, after his first year back, um, after the championship, people are like, okay, he accomplished, you know, winning a championship for his hometown team. He can kind of go and do whatever he wants. Um now and I think there was you know obviously he signed um an extension after the championship that you know gave him two years with the team and then the player option in the third which I think so then you know I think that was kind of like okay he's really not willing to give the Cavs an extension and I think there was kind of always that worry for some people um you know, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of you're just kind of expecting the worst. And whether that's being Cleveland fans or whether that's knowing that he left his hometown team before, um, I'm not sure. But I think there was always kind of a fear there. Like, oh, my God, it's it's almost like getting back together with a bad boyfriend. You're like, when's he, when's he going to cheat on me again? Or when's he going to leave me again? Um, you, you kind of always have that fear in the back of your mind. Um, and I think from some, for some fans that never left, I think some fans were always expecting the worst. Um, but then the opposite end of that spectrum is fans who were so convinced by that sports illustrated letter that he was going to retire here, that there was, you know, no circumstance that would make him leave. Um, and obviously that proved to be incorrect. So you said, talked earlier about how the first time he left, you were a senior in high school. Fast forward to now, and you are covering the Cavs and other Cleveland sports teams, you know, as a member of the media. In your experience, how were the two departures different? Oh, I think it was so, I mean, it was a complete 180 turn degree, degree turn for me. Um, I remember being angry when he left the first time. And as I said, and you don't have alluded to multiple times now, it's, it was the fact of how he left. And, you know, that was kind of the player that I grew up watching. So it really stung that first time. But, you know, I always say once you become a member of the media, being a fan kind of gets beaten out of you and you start to think about things a lot more, um, rationally and objectively just because you have to, it's the nature of a job, the job, um, so leading up to his free agency this time around, I was kind of a lot more aware of the fact that him leaving was a very real possibility. Uh, during the finals, when he started talking about wanting to play with cerebral teammates, it was, I believe, right before uh, game four, he where he really went into this, he like held court for like 20 minutes and was talking about this and how important it is in having basketball IQ to be a successful team and to beat the Warriors and being around cerebral teammates. And that for me was, okay, this is either him explaining what the Cavs need to go out and get for him in the next couple of weeks, or this is him explaining exactly why he is leaving. Like there is no other way around this was my opinion. Um, and then for real, the, I guess the, the real 
change in my mind of, okay, this is a thing that's definitely happening, (laughs) him leaving, is when we learned that he cut all contact off with the Cavs and was only going uh, through his agents. Because the only other times that he has not been sort of active in the offseason and communicating with the front office and, um, you know, saying, okay, this is what I'm thinking – was in 2010 when he left Cleveland and in 2014 when he left Miami. So when he did that again, it was kind of like, oh, this seems like it's probably not a great thing for the Cavs. I will say the only like caveat was them saying he's not taking any pitch meetings from anyone, that it's all going to be done through the representatives. Was like, okay, maybe that's the only like morsel of hope that we had to hang on to. Uh, but for me this time around, it was definitely – just having a better understanding of how LeBron operates, how LeBron's camp operates. Um, and now just having seen him change teams two times, knowing what led up to both of those. So understanding the history of his decisions a little bit better, uh, definitely allowed me to kind of form an opinion a few weeks before we really had anything to go on. Do you think there was a big difference between the way the, media kind of reads the tea leaves back in 2010 versus now. Cause like I've been this whole off season, I've started to kind of feel like the more you follow the media, the more kind of unfun and surprising any of these announcements are because they seem to kind of like figure it out. And then if you know, certain media members are talking about it, you go, Oh, he's got, or she's got inside information. This is, this is where it's going. Yeah. Well, I definitely think LeBron is unique in the sense that his um, camp doesn't really leak things ever. Like, obviously, they worked with Lee Jenkins in 2014. They worked with him a little bit again. Uh, to write for, the letter, you mean? Yeah, to write the letter. Back. He told by letter when he came back. They worked with Lee Jenkins on that, and it was published in SI. Um, and then Lee Jenkins had this phenomenal piece right after his decision this time around about the meeting with Magic Johnson about LeBron's vacation, about, you know, a little bit into his thinking. It obviously wasn't uh, as told by letter um, this time around, but they don't really leak things. You know, Uh it it kind of is dependent on, there are a few journalists I think that are like in that scope, but it's not how you see like, you know, other NBA players leaking things to journalists that they trust. LeBron doesn't really do that as much. Um, I do think with social media this time around, it's a lot different. Like you think Twitter was a thing back in 2010, but like, not really. I wasn't on Twitter at that time. I didn't even know what Twitter was. I don't think. Um, so I think there's a lot more you can, like you said, you can become really saturated in a lot of information really quickly from a lot of different sources. And I think we saw that this time around, um, Everyone wants to think that they know something. And in the weeks leading up to it, I said, there's every single possible prediction out here right now, I think. Like, somebody is going to be right, but it's not going to be because they knew something. It was going to be by sheer dumb luck. Like, just because we're predicting everything. Like, um, you know, every possible scenario had been put out there. And I think that definitely with social media you saw that a lot more this time around than in 2010, which, I mean, granted, it was still very much a media circus and the focus of that offseason. But this time around, I think it, it was definitely even crazier. 
I'm curious for you personally, what are some of the things that you're going to miss about having him in Cleveland as, as a member of that team, especially things that maybe some of us who are in the Western Conference and we all we see is like the big media coverage of LeBron. What are some things that you and the community might really miss? Well, I mean, for me personally, it's just getting to watch, you know, obviously, arguably one of the, if not the greatest basketball player ever, night in and night out. I mean, there's really nothing like it. And I got to do it for three seasons. So I consider myself very lucky. You know, I'm going to miss obviously beyond things like the playoffs, the finals, like I've really only ever covered the Cavs with LeBron on them. So it's going to be a completely different experience for me. Um, I think a lot of the stress goes away, but you also, when you cover LeBron, you can get stories just based on what he says. And you can have great material about another guy, or you can have an idea that you think you're going to want to write about. But I'll use an example for earlier this year. LeBron James comes out at shoot around and says he thinks the NCAA is corrupt. Then that kind of becomes the news of the day, right? He basically writes your story for you. Um, and that is kind of on you then as a journalist to try to make what he says, you know, into something unique. And do you, you know, do, am I now writing two stories based on what he said? Uh, because something, one thing he said was so newsy and I have something else really great. Does he say like three newsy things that are now three separate stories that I have to figure out, okay, what am I going to do to, you know, turn this around as quickly as possible? Um, and also, I think LeBron is really great in working with the media that way. He knows what we're, you know, he knows what he says is going to be news. Um, and when he has something to say and wants to get something out there, he says it. And, you know, people always talk about the other thing that has always stuck with me about him. When you ask him a question, he looks you in the eye and answers it. He, you know, he doesn't just like look at the ground or stare straight ahead or stare into the cameras. He actually like, it's like you're having a conversation with him, which um, I think is always appreciated. He appreciates the journalists that are around um, all the time and putting the work in because, you know, for him, he always talks about when you're true to the game, the game gives back. So I think for us and the media members, he looks at that too. Like if you're willing to put the time in, he's willing to give you more. Um, and, you know, I think it's just the general, like I said, just that combined with what he means to the game of basketball, combined with the different, you know, events of him making history night in and night out, whether it's 30,000 points or him beating Michael Jordan's double digit scoring streak, like those two things happen in the same year. It's crazy. Um, and, you know, who knows when the Cavs are going to get back to the finals again, but you know, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be odd only covering him in person one night a season. Um, yeah. It's good from going from 41 nights a season since I don't travel with the team. Um, but, you know, it's, that's definitely an odd sensation. And, but as I said, since I don't know any differently, I'm really curious what that adjustment is going to be like now going to a post LeBron world. Well, that leaves me kind of to my, my last question is, you know, putting on your like, you know, uh, forecasters hat. <laughs> what do you have any idea what you think this next season is going to bring? Like, uh, who do you think might 
step up really big, who might, you know, turn out to have been, you know, uh, hiding behind the shadow. What do you think might happen with the team this year? My opinion is that the situation for the 2018-19 season is a lot different than it was for the Cavs in 2010-2011. That year, they lost 26 games in a row. The leading scorer was Anton Jameson. And, you know, it was just a really bleak time for that first year. And the hope kind of began resurging amongst fans when the Cavs drafted Kyrie Irving. Uh, But obviously right now, the Cavs still have Kevin Love, who's a bona fide all-star in his own right, who kind of has been playing third fiddle and then second fiddle this year behind LeBron and was a guy who was willing to sacrifice to be on a championship contender. And I think this year we see Kevin Love get his numbers back up closer to what they were in Minnesota. Um, Even this year, his numbers throughout the first half of the season, he was a 20 and 10 guy. And he was the guy that really suffered when the Cavs tried to integrate Isaiah Thomas uh, back into the lineup. And then obviously he broke his hand um, and only had a few games to get back before the postseason started. So his averages weren't even what they could have been this year, I think. Um, obviously Colin Sexton from what he showed in Summer League. And obviously, you know, you take everything in Summer League with a grain of salt. But just the ability to play fast, the ability to play in transition is not necessarily something the Cavs have had, um, especially this past year without Kyrie Irving. But even before, they never really had that even in like a backup point guard. Um, And I think also for Ty Lue, this is the first year that we really see what kind of coach he is. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of different things probably a lot less isolation basketball than we've seen over the last four years and over the last two years, two and a half years with Ty. Um, And I think outwardly, just overall, the goals of the organization are different. They've essentially come out and said, we think we can make a playoff push this year. Um, We want to do that. And I think last time around when LeBron left, getting good draft picks were the focus. Um, And obviously, I think that's still somewhat a focus, but I don't know if it's the main focus anymore. I think they want to try to be successful this season. And, you know, who knows how that's going to work out. But I think the East is definitely a lot weaker than it was the first time LeBron left, considering he's going out West. Um, So I definitely think that the situation is different, but in one big way, it's the same and that there's no one bandaid to fix losing LeBron James. So is this team even a 500 team? Like that's probably pretty doubtful right now. And there's going to definitely be uh, some pretty big bumps in the road because that's what happens when you lose a generational talent like that. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about, um, all of this. I one of the things I loved about talking to people from other fan bases is learning about all the things that I never would have, you know, considered <laughs> from, you know, from my vantage point over here on the West Coast and just when you said that, you know, you're only going to be covering him one night a week as opposed to 41 nights. I mean, that is absolutely massive and I hadn't even thought about the fact that him leaving conferences, you don't even get to see him, you know, two times a year. You only get to see him one time a year. And that's, yeah, that's, that's really amazing. But it sounds like the folks in Cleveland and Cavaliers fans are a little more, maybe a little more prepared this time or. um, I definitely think there's more of like a, 
like a thank you LeBron mentality. There's not really anger anymore. Like there's a sadness, I think, on the fans part of, yeah, he doesn't play for us anymore. But, you know, kind of what I was saying earlier, I think given everything he's done for the community, given the championship especially, um, I think people always are going to consider him a Cavalier here, honestly. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast, all about what happens when a player leaves. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was very therapeutic for me anyway. Let me give let me run down one more time how you can find all of our guests. Find Sandy on Twitter at Sandy S. Mui and her writing on the Yes Network. Caitlin can be found on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper, and her writing is on indiecornrose.com. And finally, Ashley is at Ashley Bastock42, and you can find her writing on fearthesword.com. Kendall will be back soon. In the meantime, you can find her on Twitter at KendallBennett16. And finally, you can find me, Team Mom, on Twitter at TCBBigs. You can follow this podcast at Hoops and Talks on Twitter. And you can also find us in the Blazers Edge podcast feed on whatever podcast app that you like to use. Thank you so much for listening.